Hi there, and welcome to the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast with me, Joe O'Connor. The show where one special guest talks all things travel, the trips that have shaped their lives, what travel really means to them, and indeed, what it might look like in the future. Now, you can't talk about travel in 2020 and not address how the industry is impacting our planet. Well before the pandemic, questions were being asked about what we can do to reduce the levels of carbon emissions produced by air travel. As a result of some self-reflection, my guest for this episode took the difficult decision to give up what is part of his passion and his livelihood, traveling by air. Last year, something big changed. 2019, just the global consciousness, just all of our attitudes to actually what travel was doing to the planet and particularly in terms of of carbon of carbon emissions it struck home to me and had you asked me like two years ago i just i would would never have dawned on me to stop travel this was something that was in my own blood it was how i made sense of the world manakon mcgann is a writer and documentary maker he has written books on his travels in africa india and south america and has presented dozens of documentaries on issues of world culture for the likes of tg car rte and the travel channel His 2008 book, Truck Fever, charts his epic journey as a 19-year-old, traveling overland from London to Nairobi in an old army truck. I was 19. That changed my life. That had repercussions on my life that that I'm still living with today. It changed everything. First moment I arrived in Morocco, I saw people who were living like they did in the Bible images. I had studied, you know, I'd seen in in school, in New Testament images. And I thought, I never knew that. I never knew there were people dressed in traditional hand-spun garments, minding their sheep all day on the side of a hill. It made sense to me. Whereas the main world I was fleeing in Dublin, in sort of Dublin 4, didn't. This made sense to me. When we caught up, Manakon spoke about his childhood holidays on the Blasket Islands, getting rescued from a cow shed in the Himalayas, the beauty in places around the equatorial belt, and his newfound interest in virtual travel. It is nothing like the immediacy of real travel, but yet it's something. It's a shadow, an echo, a haunting self for those of us who, who pine so much for, for, for something that has been so meaningful for so long. All that and much more on this episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast. I hope you enjoy. Monacon, thanks for joining me on the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast. How are you? Very good, I gotta tell you. So what we're like two months into into COVID. I haven't done any travel for a long time. I had been planning to have a load of travel done this spring, but nonetheless, I'm I'm just really enjoying this slowdown, I must say. Good to hear. And plenty of good things have come out of this, of course, as you said, slowing down and taking time to think and reflect. But I have heard you talk about this virtual travel. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so... You know, for whatever, I've been traveling for 30 years now. From when I think it was 1989 was the first thing I trip I did. Uh, and then I, I mean, that was went right across Africa. And then I spent a few years in South America. And then I spent time in India. And then I started making travel documentary channels for the Travel Channel. And then I started writing for the Irish Times about travel. And then I started writing travel books. So all my life has been travel until last year, something big changed. 2019 just the global consciousness, just all of our attitudes to actually what travel was doing 
to the planet and particularly in terms of, of carbon, of carbon emissions, it struck home to me. And had you asked me like two years ago, I just, I w- it would never have dawned on me to stop travel. This was something that was in my own blood. It was how I made sense of the world. And then 2019 made us think, oh my God, actually, that idea of we heard that there was this potential future climate change struck home. And I realized that potential future is now. So I was going to have to make changes. I could no longer... Um, with all good conscience, be reporting about travel and encouraging people to travel in newspapers, on radio, on television, in on blogs, in every single way I could. Um, I had to stop. And I thought, okay, what does it mean? What If you don't travel, uh, what do you have instead? And I suppose one thing you're left with, and it's a paltry comparison, but that is virtual travel. It's basically, uh, I mean, you know, it's, I can tell you all the things it's not. It's not immersing yourself. It's not having a cup of coffee in the main square of a distant place, <laughs> feeling the, 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 the different air on your skin and having the smells from the market. But it is still trying to fulfill your curiosity by focusing on one particular place, whether it is like the back streets of Venice or, or a part of Istanbul, and just trying to experience that virtually. So, so let's say with Istanbul, learning about the local food and eating it at home, finding all the ingredients, are using all of the, how all, so many cultural institutions now have um, online performances and shows and insight to their culture. Um, is that, or even down to the step of even virtually experiencing journeys, like the amount of trains, train rides, like the great iconic train rides of the world that you can now find in on Vimeo and YouTube, where someone has put a camera, has strapped a camera to the front engine of the train or inside the the the, the, um, the front cab and documented the entire journey. So it is it's no, it has nothing like the immediacy of real travel. But yet it's it's something. It's a shadow, an echo, a haunting self to um, for those of us who, who pine so much for, for, for something that has been so meaningful for so long. And was, is this a big thing or, you know, is it something that's really kicked in since the whole COVID pandemic? Um, you know, is there a big following out there? No, it's a tiny thing, virtual travel. Um, and... So, you know, before COVID, I mean, obviously COVID has stopped everyone traveling. But what has been happening over the last few years is people have been thinking, am I able to travel because in light of climate change? Now, as I said, up until last year, that was a tiny minority of people. You'd almost spot them coming, you know, these and they seemed weirdos to me when I met them. These people had given up and they were saying, well, they were going to experience other places virtually by reading books, by listening, by tasting, by smelling. Um, And so... Again, it, you know, it didn't seem appealing to me. It's, uh, it was like, ah, uh, uh, you know, what is the best? Um, I remember the priests in school used to say that although they were celibate, they'd still liked reading the menu, which was their way of saying that they'd look at women. It was that type of sad thing, you know, the sad lack of the actual experience. But now the whole world, none of us have travelled. We've all had our trips cancelled. And some of us are finding that actually if I can spend an afternoon in Paris by by, list, by going to some great exhibition or concert that's been put online and then reading some gorgeous accounts of some great, classic dinners that were there or even making up a cocktail that can only be had in some beautiful um uh, some beautiful sort of cocktail bar in the center then it goes some way towards uh, alleviating those pangs that 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 loneliness that's that pang of of um of separation of isolation that we all feel obviously you, you know you're hugely passionate about travel i mean it must be so difficult to, to actually make that decision and to put it out there as well to, to actually write an article so that, you know, 
in, in some ways there's no going back. No, I mean, I realise, so I do not want to be judging people about whether they're taking flights or not. I just realised that in my role, because I was, I made a quarter of my life, I suppose, as travel journalism. I do other things as well. But that travel journalism, that's all about just promoting destinations and trying to lure, trying to encourage people to get on flights. Um, and it made absolute sense to me. In fact, I thought it was a virtuous thing. I believe that travel writing was the only form of literature that breaks down barriers, that brings people together, that tries to unite the world. So I was quite comfortable following that um, idea. And then I suddenly realised, OK, now we know, at least in 2019, when we saw the effects, when we saw Australia burning, when we saw the effects of climate change around the world, we know what carbon is doing. And I just thought, how would I feel in 10 years' time if, like, if... If the climate change, if the, the effects of carbon have really struck home, and I knew back then that carbon emissions were damaged, and particular flights, because they drop their carbon in the upper atmosphere, are particularly damaging, that I knew 10 years ago the damage was, and I still kept on encouraging people to do it just so that I could have an income or just so that I could keep getting cheap flights and going on free holidays that were given to me by the travel industry. Um, I, f- I thought it'd be a lot harder to me live myself, live with myself, than the, with the consequences that were than of that, than to just stop stop flights. And I made the decision I wasn't going to fly for holidays or for re- recreational trips abroad, but I was still going to take trains. And that for me that was the great excitement. There's a world is opened up to you by thinking about taking trains uh, around Europe. And it just ha- so happened. So, you know, 2020 was my big year. I was going to take five big train trips. And then every week there was new news coming on about, you know, Austrian air- airline um, railways having this new overnight sleeper the whole way to um, Amsterdam and uh, all of these other countries going back to produce, putting on more high-speed rail or more night trains. So it sounded like, actually, I wasn't going to lose out at anything. I was still going to get to explore my world, but just not in, not in a, a cattle... Uh, truck uh, uh, up in the sky with wings anymore well i suppose if we just move on to out of virtual travel and look back more than anything about at your travel experiences and going back to your earliest one is there something that stands out as your earliest travel memory yeah so like as a family we didn't travel abroad we didn't take flights we had a house in west kerry in the kirkogrina gweltacht so every year i was just taking a train down to west kerry but my we've been my family have been going there for a hundred years main first onto the blasket islands so i would be there when i went it was down to maria and balneterig so it wasn't quite onto the blasket but i'd be hanging out i'd be going around to the cottages of old blasket islanders hearing about the life that they spent there life obviously without running water without electricity without modernity um and so that was my immersion throughout the 70s and 80s okay and then eventually in 1989 i leave school and i meant to go into the big world to join the big world and i suddenly get massive depression i realize there's no way i can slot into getting a nice job and getting a, a mortgage and settling down in the suburbs so i just fled i got depression thought i have to get out of here and i realized in the back of the british sunday newspapers the observer or something the sunday times there were these little ads and one ad said uh, a truck crossing Africa an ex-army truck was going to go across Africa for seven months and it was going to cost £1,000 and I'd seen a few of those ads before and they cost £3,000 normally but this one was £1,000 Explorer Expeditions was the name of the company and my brother was lit working at the time in uh, Germany. So this was the late 80s, a big recession, on no, no jobs in Ireland. But I was 19, I was able to go over to Frankfurt 
I work in a supermarket or a hypermarket, earn some money, and I had my £1,000. So I came back and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to finally explore the world beyond this little European cocoon. And I took, I got, I took the, the ferry to London, or down to Ramsgate, down to the port down the south of England, got on board this huge big ex-army truck, this seven-ton Bedford truck with 20 other people. And we headed off down through France, through Spain, through Morocco, through Algeria, right to the centre of the Sahara Desert, to um, Taman Rasset, to the main oasis in the centre of the Sahara. And then from there, keeping on south through Niger, into Benin, um, into Togo. And then we did this massive turn eastwards towards East Africa, right through um, Central African Republic and Cameroon and Zaire, as it was, or no, the, yeah, Zaire, the Congo now, uh, to finish up in Uganda. And Kenya and Tanzania and I was 19 that changed my life that had repercussions on my life that I that I'm still living with today it changed everything first the first moment I arrived in Morocco I saw people who were living like they did in the bible images I had studied you know I'd seen in the in the school in the new testament images and I thought I never knew that I never knew there were people dressed in traditional hand spun garments minding their sheep all day on the side of a hill um, and it just it made sense to me whereas the main world I was fleeing in Dublin in sort of Dublin 4 didn't this made sense to me so we continued on as I said that seven months right through the heart of Africa terrible terrible things happened to us as, as it does to any ignorant group of of people in a in a deep you know um, an exotic foreign country that they don't understand and don't appreciate we ended up losing all our money all our passports all our everything by entirely our own fault and so we went without food for um, oh, about at least over eight days. We went out water, without water for three days. Um, wow. I got all sorts of incurable diseases. And yet it was the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. It, it, it's the reason that I now live in this little simple straw grass roofed um, house, like a shack really, hovel down Westmead. Because I saw that's the way you can live. Yeah, yeah, incre incredible trip at the age of nineteen. But it sounds of it. And at that stage, had you not really gone to anywhere in Europe? Say, you know, you were you just jumped in the deep end. So no, to speak. I think no, I don't. Never had family ho holidays, as I said. But I had done a French exchange when I was sixteen. You know, going off to Lyon for three weeks or something to, to practice French. And then I had been over, as I said, to my brother's apartment in Frankfurt to do the um, to to work in the supermarket. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh no, I probably had that classic leaving cert right after the leaving cert. A few months before Africa, I did uh, going down to the to Fuengirola to the Costa del Sol after the leaving cert with some mates. Yeah. Okay. Very different to your Africa experience. Yeah. Did you ever end up writing about that manacan? I did. Yeah, I wrote a book. I wrote a book first when I came home uh, in Irish. It was called I don't know what it was called. It was called Ancona Shachran o Vlachliaga. Nairobi, Ashan Nariaram. Okay, that came out maybe. So I did the trip in eighty nine. Probably the book I wrote in about ninety three. Don't know. Maybe came out in ninety eight. But then about in twenty ten, I wrote an English version of that book called Truck Fever, with Brandon Publishers at the were at the time. Brandon, the man who ran that, died. Yeah, and it was very hard because there was twenty people on the truck. Okay, we did appalling things to both each other and to the, every African person we met. Like I was the only one who spoke French, and seventy percent of those countries are francophone. You know, they don't speak a word of English. Oh, and, right. Okay. And the other people in the truck just they hated they hated the the local Africans. So we did some horrible things. 
But I wrote this account and I realised I had to be fair to everyone because I was the only person writing the account and yet I was telling every about what happened uh, to all the other people. So I remember I, okay. I, was, I, I did an interview at the time for BBC Radio 4 uh, about it and some of the people who were on the truck you know, got on to me. I hadn't heard from them from you know, 15 or 20 years. Uh, which were some okay. tense scenes. But it was, yeah, I wrote three travel books in my time. One about my time up uh, as a medical supervisor with l- curing lepers, and I was living in a, in a cow shed in India. Another one about my time in South America, uh, running a big um, organic farm in a, in a sort of um, drug smuggling area on the Ecuadorian-Peruvian border. And then the book about book about Africa. I was going to ask you, is there a certain trip that gave you that real fascination with seeing more of the world and that probably was the same trip would you say yeah so that i mean that definitely um fulfilled you know fueled my desire to i was i wanted to keep on exploring the world and see what was out there and i wanted to live on the edge it excited me so much those 10 days without food or water i realized this is life this is actually what matters nothing else without a safety net when you don't know you're going to survive i mean only a 19 year old would have such uh, idiotic (laughs) thoughts about you know it anyone with sensible would have thought that you was lethally dangerous i had two incurable diseases at the time like it was just foolhardy and stupid but the time the trip that probably had the most effect was the one maybe four years or five years later when I was in this cow shed I, I wanted I was looking for a cave to meditate in or just to sit in for months and months in the Himalayas and no I couldn't find a cave but a farmer gave me his cow shed and I ended up there for eight months just going really deep into sort of parts of my brain that you shouldn't have access to um, and finally after about six or seven months I was like so far gone that my, I'd, I'd send a fax home to my mum maybe once every two weeks because my mum my heard her my dad had died so I'd send these faxes home and she she realised her youngest son had gone round the bend so she sent my brother oh, out on a mission of mercy to rescue me my older brother who was successful and practical and was a um, he was in film at the time in Dublin so he right. the last thing he wanted to do was like go out after his waster you know um, over educated <laughs> waster younger brother so he brought a camera with him a little Sony DV camera first generation digital camera the weeks before he went this was 1996 he asked tg car could he make a documentary the tg car weren't even on air they were going to be on air seven months later so he came out and uh, he cleaned me up he found me with like hair you know stinking a piss i was drinking a lot of my own urine at the time i was following some sort of ayurvedic therapy and my hair like long hair long beard and he just he was so disgusted at the state of me so he took me to the local town brought me to the barber hose you know washed me down bought me a new shirt and put me in front of the camera and said, you're making a television series. Start talking about India now. And I was only too happy to start telling everyone about how great urine drinking was and how deep, how we're all united as one angel being and all. So he slapped sense into me. Uh, Thank God. Um, And we made it, we made a program. And on the first, the second day TG Carr was ever on the air, our television in Guelga in 1996, I think the first night no, Gabriel Byrne did a film first, and then I think right after was Miss Monkhan Shahran, actress in Ind or something. Monkhan goes walk about a big journey in India. Um, and then we did Monkhan that. drinks his own piss exactly. in India. Yeah, thank you. My brother wouldn't allow me to put that in, despite what I wanted. Wow. So we did that for about a decade. Yeah, we made... Yeah. So he did save you, would you say? Yeah. Well, I, it's debatable. I was more than happy. I, I was blissfully happy there. Like, so I didn't <laughs> want to be saved by anyone. And if, you ha- if he hadn't come, I'd still be up there as one of those waster hippies that you see. Um, yeah, I yeah. think that might have been a better life for me. But from a, 
from a pragmatic point of view and you know having an income and being able to be be, be wash and not be smelly he probably did save me in that respect very good yeah. very good could, could you monocon it's, it's difficult but could you describe what excites you most about travel yeah it's basically like life is so precious the fact that we're incarnated in this world at the moment and it's so easy to forget that it's so easy to become habituated to the norm there's just this brain patterns in our mind the minute that we are used to something uh we don't we don't uh, give attention to it anymore and it just happens that the minute you step outside your comfort zone you are totally raw and aware and awake and receptive so even like if I go to London I've been you know the amount of times I've gone to London over the last 30 years but the minute I step outside my comfort zone or arrive in Luton or Heathrow or from now on in it'll it'll always be Hollyhead I am so much more attuned to every element of the outside world, but not only that, also to my own inner feelings. Because um, you've just you notice your inner thoughts and where you're feeling and where you are the minute you step out of the norm. Just, it's it's just a brain program that we think, oh my god, everything's new, um, and it's so it reawakens you, it reenlivens you, it uh, it resuscitates you and makes the world fresh and vibrant again. So that for me, it's that it's that yeah refreshing that the traveling does. Okay, great description. And sometimes I find that, you know, at your worst moments of travel, you know, and perhaps something like you experienced in Africa or drinking your own piss in India, you know, sometimes it's looking back on those what seemed like some awful experiences at the time, you know, turned out to be the most rewarding. It's funny, isn't would it? Would you agree with I, that? I, I certainly would. It's funny that that's such a case. And the, the fact is, though, as we get older, and the fact that now I travel with a um, with a visa card means you'll never allow yourself get to those really edgy situations anymore. You know, now I'll just I'll buy my way out of any all those all those situations that made me like the time where I was shot at by the um, in, during the second intifada in Jerusalem by the Israeli army. While I was just I was trying to just get in between them and the Palestinians at the wrong time, or the time in in South America where like we had everything we had, um, we were up in the guerrilla controlled far controlled area of Colombia, um, and uh, anyway they didn't take well to us at the time and sort of took everything we had and then I was thrown into prison in a in a in a jail on the border between Colombia and Peru. Nowadays I wouldn't find myself in those dangerous places. I wouldn't be off that beaten path that much, you know. Just because I've got lazy and tired and weary and I don't have that sense of, I don't have that sense of excitement. But also I have to admit, there was a real desperation fueling that young travel. As I said, I didn't fit into the right world, the to that Dublin 4 world. I didn't want a job, a normal job. I didn't want to settle down. And I knew that if I didn't find an alternative way of being in the world, I was just going to get into deep, deep despair, depression. So it wasn't a sane uh, you know, clever, um, reasoned um, agenda that was fueling me. I was just desperate to find a way of fitting into the world. Okay, and travel, you know, it fed. that's where you found oh, that Oh, it was my entire education. Yeah. It was giving me everything, yeah. And like, you know, I said, I, I can live very cheaply because I don't have a mortgage because I came down to Westmead, bought 10 acres and built a straw bale house for five grand. Built it myself, put the electricity in, put the plumbing okay. in, put the walls. Then I built my, I lived in that for six years. Then I built a second house made of block and grass on the roof and mud and straw on the outside for 20 grand. The only reason I did that was because 
everywhere around the world, in South America, in India, in Africa, that's what I'd seen. That's what people did. They didn't enslave themselves for their life for a mortgage. They just got whatever was around them, mud or stone or reeds or, or um, wood, and built a house. So I thought, that's what I'll do. And again, because I travelled, I met people, particularly backpackers all over the world, who had the same ideas, who told me about straw bale building, who told me about how you can grow your vegetables easily on raised beds, who told me about clever ways of irrigation and fermenting, um, and I learned, I learned freedom from them. I learned a way of not being part of the mainstream world. Incredible. Yeah, it sounds like there's a whole podcast in that, but uh, it sounds like you're living a very sustainable life. Yes, I've been, it's, it's been lucky, and it's just a gift that travel has given me. Yeah. Great stuff, Monacon. Um, is there a place you would say you would never return to? Obviously, <laughs> anywhere you need to get by air is probably one of those places. But is there somewhere, somewhere you've been that you would say, no, I won't be coming here again? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, you know, all my life I traveled alone until about five years ago I fell in love. And so and now I sometimes travel with the girlfriend. Um, and uh, she it was interesting. When we, last time we were in America, like America was so big, such a big influence, the United States on me, but on everyone in Ireland, you know, at some stage, particularly in the, in the 70s and 80s, it was our golden light, you know, um, TV, Hollywood, it still is for the world. And I, I've got so much alternative thinking and insights from both Canada and the United States. And yet last time I was in the United States, um, I was just actually just before last, last year, I was in New York, the end of the year. I thought, I don't think there's anything for me here anymore. Like, and I, I couldn't, mm-hmm. I broke my heart to think of that. Like there's places that I've never been on purpose. I've never been to Aust- Australia and I don't have a big yearning. I've never been to Russia just because I was sort of, I found it too intimidating. Um, but a place that I've been quite a bit and now I'm thinking, I don't know, do I? I mean, I'll go back, yeah, I'd go back if I had to for work. But it has no pull on me anymore. The United States, it is, I think it had such a great role. It, was a, it gave so many gifts to the world in the 20th century. And I'm not sure it has much to offer us anymore until, you know, maybe another 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely looking at things, uh, how they are now there, it doesn't exactly appeal to people, I would say. Okay, and, and then the other end of it, would you say you have a f- favourite travel destination, Monaco? I mean, you know, what, I'm now almost 50, and the more... I'm just getting more and more connected to my land here. I'm planting more and more trees, growing more and more vegetables. But the place that had the biggest hold on me, it was always places that were around the equatorial belt, okay, but were about 100 metres up. So the places that I fell most deeply in love with were the um, Vilcabamba in Ecuador, which is this valley of longevity just beyond uh, Loja in in Ecuador. And again, it's near enough to the equator, 100 metres up. The other was... um, um, the fort around the area around Fort Portal in Uganda, um, and again the same thing around the equator, but a hundred meters up. So you get this gorgeous. So you know you we equate the equator with this sort of tropical heat, and it's not that when you go a hundred meters. No, it's a thousand feet, so it's about three hundred meters. That's it. Okay. And uh, you, when you get to that, it feels like springtime. It feels like sort of twenty-two degrees uh, Celsius, Celsius all year round. So it's this balmy heat. The, there's enough rainfall because it's the equator so that everything is lush fruit and vegetables grow with incredible profusion um, and if you get so if you have a community who've lived in an area like that where there has always been bountiful food then they tend to be very peaceful very restive um, and there's a few of these areas which are known for their longevity uh, along this ring of the world so for me it'll be that yeah it's sort of a paradise place 
Then I suppose, Monica, and it's something we're all thinking about right now, and you've touched on it and how you'll approach travel. But how do you view travel in the future? Do you think this whole pandemic is going to make us think more about global warming? You know, more reluctant to, to travel by plane. How do you view things in the in the coming years? Yeah, it's like it's been so hard, isn't it? Like the last two months, we're we're all trying to second guess ourselves. We're trying to think, what is the future of everything? What's the future of our jobs? What's the future of food? What's the future of travel? Uh, and how? comfortable are people going to be in close spaces in close proximity in one part of your brain would think okay they're not going to be very close and yet we see the images of the crowds of people in america and britain the minute they're allowed back on a beach it seems that we don't um we don't remember anything about the distancing the minute we feel it's safe to come back uh, in close we do and maybe that's because all our lives we felt being close to people so i I don't actually believe, um, you know, you read these accounts where everything is going to change, there's going to be these long-term drastic changes. I don't. I think, I, I think human behaviour won't change. I think we will be happy to be crammed up uh, like sardines in an, in an airplane and in waiting lounges. Mm. Um, now, whether for legal reasons the companies will not want to make it look like that they caused another, um, you know, um, cluster so that they might enforce distancing... But I think humans we are like that pull. We often laugh at people going to the Costa del Sol. And as I said, it was my first journey. That is a really mm. profound act. Like Native Americans have this, had this, a lot of different tribes in Native America had this ritual. They would go to the ocean once a year to be rejuvenated. So when Irish people and English people, and you know, the way, you know that fact, two million Irish people went to Spain last year. Two million. Okay, Incredible. that's half of the population yeah. in one way, or at least a third, depending on you count it. But we mm-hmm. go there because it is hardwired into us to go to 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 be revivified to get some warmth to get some seed to get some sand um that to, to have that that warmth to touch our bodies and i think we will do anything to to make that happen it was too an important part of our lives um said so up until the 1950s none of us did it none of us had foreign holidays but now it's been come the it's been the key thing in a really high speed stressful world the moment we get on a plane and go elsewhere we we decompress. So from a you know from a yearning point of view, I think it'll continue. From a carbon point of view, um, no, it cannot continue. Like at some point, maybe in a decade, maybe in fifteen years, there'll be electric planes and people will be able to fly again in United in sorry in Europe within Europe. Um, but otherwise, I'm not sure it's ready yet. I couldn't look someone in the eye and tell them to stop flying now. I just said for my sake, I wasn't gonna flaunt flying so i wasn't going to write about flying do flying holidays if there was a piece of work that was going to bring me to somewhere um let's say to united states on a tour or something i might still do that what i do is maybe my idea is i'm going to do a um limit myself so limit myself to the to the the carbon emissions of maybe one cross transatlantic flight every two years and i think that is 2.3 tons so maybe we should all limit ourselves maybe the government should impose give us all the equivalent of that like each one, each Irish person, you know, uses about seven tons or seven and a half tons uh, of carbon. We emit seven tons of carbon per year, okay, an Irish person. But then a, a trans- transatlantic flight is two and a half tons. So if you do that, you're just you're using up a lot of your you know your limit. Um, but you know, within that, you could do six flights to Berlin uh, for two point three million tons. So there's ways of doing it that way, maybe. Okay, it'll be certainly interesting to watch. Well, then, how about yourself? Then you know when travel restrictions are lifted you did say you had some train journeys lined up yeah. is there anywhere you think you, you would go first so i mean right now i am meant to be 
go, fly. I'm meant to be taking the train to first to um, to Munich and then going on from Munich to Bosnia. Um, and it was hard. I had worked it all out. I mean, I'd, everything was arranged. I was going to, well, f- it's easy enough f- to get from Munich to Croatia. But then they sort of bombed a lot of the railway lines between Bosnia and Croatia during the war. So I was going to have to take a car, a taxi just to get across the border and then get on another train in Bosnia. I still really want to do that journey. And I once, as soon as things open up, I'd love to do that. I'm, I mean, we, we know there's dates in July, but I think things are going to be a lot more complicated now. I think border crossings and everything. So I'll wait until I'm sure that it can be done. So I was going to do that in June. And then in, in early September, I was maybe going down to south of France uh, on the train. And luckily in February of this year, just before lockdown, I, I took the train down to Seville, down through Barcelona to Seville, uh, which was gorgeous. Um, and then I was also hoping, ideally, if I could, to start um, taking this train to Iceland, which would mean taking a ferry and a train up to Scotland and then up to uh, Denmark and from there to the Faroe Islands and there another ferry from the Faroe Islands to Iceland. It looks like now oh. I probably won't get to do that until 2021. Wow, sounds like some trips. Oh, uh, You wouldn't believe, in the last two months, the amount of times that I've just yearned to be on a train. I mean, I adore trains and I hadn't done enough of them because it was always so easy to, to fly. But this has been, it's like these pangs. It's like you lose a limb uh, regularly over these two months. I think, God, I'd love to be on a train. Even I'd love to be on a train from Dublin down to Tralee. You know, I just love the, yeah. the sense of rhythm, the sense of calmness, the sense of escape you get on a train. Yeah, there is something beautiful about train journeys, that has to be said. And it just shows you when you dig a little deeper into Europe, you know, Europe is so vast in terms of cultures, places. There really is so much to see. And you could spend the rest of your life really exploring there. Oh, Jesus, you're so right. Like, yeah, I mean, even Ireland, you know, I am still utterly bamboozled by the amount of places that I've never been to Ireland, that how Ireland wows me. Like, you know, the, the Fault Ireland is now pushing the hidden heartlands. There's places in Roscommon and Carlow and Longford and Leitrim that I wouldn't have believed, like places that are staggeringly beautiful and that no one ever goes there. So I'm thinking, OK, if I can scale that up, if Ireland is still surprising me to that extent, then, as you say, what must be out there in Europe that we've never even we've never even thought about, we've never even touched upon? I'm excited. I really am. Yeah. Great. Look, Monacan, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you and hear about some of those stories. I'll certainly be checking out your book on, on your Africa trip for sure. But uh, it's been a real pleasure and it really makes you think about the other side of travel, you know, the future of travel, air travel, what we're doing to the planet. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to make people think more. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your taking your time. And, and I hope those train trips come true for you in the next 12 months. Thank you so much, Joe. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. This episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast was produced and presented by me, Joe O'Connor. Editing and music by Paul Lochran. Thanks again to my guest, Monica McGann, for joining me, and thank you for listening. If you want to hear more about Manicon's past adventures and travel, you can check out his books on his website, monicon.com. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, safe travels, and chat soon.